Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 29 of the JD Outdoors podcast. You can follow me on Instagram at JD underscore outdoors 1773. Today, my guest will be Elite Series Angler, Frank Talley. You can follow him on Instagram at Frank underscore Talley. Today, we will be talking about what it takes to become a professional angler. So how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jordan. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you for coming on. I know you got the uh, series kicking off here soon, so you're a busy man. Yeah, you know, just wrapping up last minute stuff, boat wrap stuff, making sure the boats broke in, you know, just the, the normal stuff that you encounter, especially with our season ending so late yeah. uh, in the year in 2020, you know, our last tournament was like the first week in November. So that only gives you like a month and a half to prepare. So Absolutely. switch over boats and get back on the road again. Exactly. So where are you based out of again? <clears throat> I'm out of Temple, Texas, which is uh about 30, 45 minutes uh, north of Austin and about an hour and a half south of Dallas. So I'm like right in the middle. Gotcha. Nice. So uh, to start, do you want to give us a little background on your fishing career, how and when you started fishing and especially like getting into the tournament side of things? Sure, sure. I mean, I started out uh, like a lot of guys, you know, I started out when I was real young, four or five years old, um, fishing with my pop, you know, he took me everywhere. He was real avid bass fisherman, fish club tournaments, fish, you know, regional stuff back in the seventies. So, you know, I'm kind of dating myself, but, uh, yeah, I had a, you know, I just had a love for it from the, from the get go, me and my brother, he, my brother's, uh, you know, 10 years older than I am. So he had, you know, fish with my dad and then we, fished together all three of us a lot and then just got into team tournaments and that type of stuff and I remember you know being seven eight years old fishing team tournaments with my dad and my brother you know depending on who would take me so you know it's it's been a love of mine since day one you know and I've kind of bred into it you know but it's not for everybody I mean I'll be honest with you I've got a son that's you know just fitting to turn 18 and uh he um he doesn't want anything to do with it you know so I think I burn him out you know, bass fishing is not like the, you know, perch fishing or cat fishing where you catch 50 or 100 a day. You know, it's it, it can be tough. So I think I just burned him out. I took him so many times when he was younger. It just he just hasn't taken a liking, which is fine. Yeah. Okay. To, to each their own. Um, I'm I'm lucky that I got a, a good mentor right off off the bat out of high school. My dad took me fishing when we were younger, but we weren't like seriously into bass fishing yet. And then. Uh, you know, we, we started getting a guide up at Thousand Islands just to kind of show us how to fish a little bit. And then once I met my mentor in high school, it just took off from there. And, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars later in tackle, here we are. But yeah, I mean, once you get bit by the itch, they say, you know, it's it, I mean, you'll hawk your house payment for, for fishing lures and rods and reels, you know, it's part of it. Yeah, dude, pushing it to the last five dollars in your bank account to get that gas to go to the next tournament. Yeah. Yes, sir. Been there and done that for sure. So, um, as you uh, stated, you've been fishing for since, you know, since you can remember, but uh, out of all the memories that you've gathered over this amount of time, are there any that stick out to you the most? Obviously this last year, there's a memory that should probably stick out uh, pretty good for you, but anything else in mind? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, on the professional side, like you mentioned, Jordan, you know, winning that blue trophy was just yeah. the ultimate, no doubt. I look at it every day when I pass through the living room and see yeah. it, you know, it's still still fresh in my mind. But, you know, the memories, honestly, 
that that I remember the most is uh, goes back to my earlier years of fishing with my dad and my brother and even my nephew and my sons. You know, that, that's the stuff that you just can't ever replace. You know, you can win national events. You can, you know, take this sport to the, you know, and be at the pinnacle of the sport. But when it's all said and done, when you retire, something happens, your family's who you have to fall back on, you know? I mean, I've had some great days with my daughter and my wife, you know, fishing down south at Falcon and Sugar Lake and stuff. And that's just like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't replace those days for any amount of money, no doubt. Yeah, no, it's definitely a lot of good memories. And uh, especially when you get three people on a boat and everyone's catching fish, that's when it's a really good day. Like I had one of those with my dad and brother this last year. My brother does not fish at all, maybe twice a year. And he starts catching on this first fish. He's like, Jordan, I'm snagged on the bottom. And I'm like, no, you're not. Like, I'm, I'm watching your rod tip, like, dance. Like, you've got a fish on, brother. And he just starts reeling, and he gets it in, and he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean. Satisfying, especially with smallmouth, because he doesn't <laughs> you know, fish much. And then when you get an angry fish like that on the other end of your line, game on. Oh, yeah. I mean, we fished four in the boat before down, you know, a lot with my family and we'll get on a crankbait bite. And, you know, you got four crankbaits slinging in a 20 foot boat. You know, that's it, it, it can get brutal. I mean, we've got some hook back hook, you know, hook in the back, hook in the ear. But all in all, you know, just spending time out there with your family is the best thing. No doubt. Exactly. So um, as a professional fisherman, you've obviously traveled all across the country to fish. And uh, you said you're based out of Texas there. So where is your favorite place to fish? If you had to just pick one to fish for possibly the rest of your life, what would that be? What lake? Uh, that would definitely be Sugar Lake in Mexico. Okay. That's a, a, a lake a lot of people haven't heard of. You know, you get these, these you know, more known lakes in Mexico, like Bacharach, Guerrero, El Salto, that type of stuff. But Sugar Lake's a small, I don't want to say a small, it's a 25,000 acre lake. So it's a good okay. size, but it's, relatively small compared to some of the other Mexican yeah. lakes down there, but it's from us being in central Texas, I can be on the water down there through, through the border check and everything in about seven hours. So it's not a far drive, you know, for me. So that's my favorite, no doubt to get away. We go down there for a, a week at a time and just go to, you know, the, the food, the atmosphere, the people, I just love it all. You know, it's just a fun, fun, thing to do because you get away from the quote unquote rat race, you know, of a big city living and you go down there and you see some of the stuff that's down there. And a lot of people think that it's dangerous and don't get me wrong. I'm sure it could be if you acted, you know, ignorant, but you know, we go down there with a bass boat and we go down there to fish and <clears throat> we mind our own business and we don't have any problems, you know, but on the U S side, uh, Falcon, I've had some great memories with my pop and my brother and my nephew and my son and my wife again, you know, the, for Texas, it'd be Falcon, no doubt, but anywhere in the U S I like Champlain. I do. I mean, that's a, that's a, I'm sure you've fished it. I have not sadly. I'm, I'm about six hours away from it, but I have not fished it yet. It's on the, it's on the list. Trust me. Well, Jordan, you owe it to yourself to fish that lake. That's, 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 that's smallmouth on steroids. It's fun, no doubt. I've heard nothing but good things and watching the uh, Elite Series event on there last year. That was just an awesome spectacle to watch, just like just slugfest. And just it's it's also pretty unique to see how the smallmouth behaves slightly different compared to even like my Lake Erie smallmouth 
it was just kind of uh, something interesting to watch. That's one of my things I like learning about is just how different smallmouth are because, you know, you can catch one in Erie, the Niagara River, Ontario, St. Lawrence, Champlain, and they all look slightly different. They all behave slightly different. So it's pretty cool. Yes, sir. No doubt. So let's kind of get into the meat and potatoes of the episode here. And uh, like we said, we're going to talk about what it takes to become an elite series angler. So let's kind of dive into that a little bit. And kind of the second part to that question is, and we'll revisit it again, but for someone who wants a career in, the, in professional fishing, what tips would you give? So to start, uh, what does it take to become an elite series angler? Um, I look at it at two, two ways. Either, you know, it, that's a two-part two question depending where you fall in that spectrum of... Uh, mm-hmm of person. One is, you know, if you're just have that natural talent, which there's guys out there that literally have just natural talent, you know, where they can go out and catch them, you know, nine out of 10 times that they're out on the water and they can catch them good. Then, you know, that things start to fall in place easier and easier. And then you have a a different group of uh, guys, which, you know, is probably 75 or 80% of the guys out there that, you know, everything doesn't fall in and talent isn't you know, they're talented, but they're not like that upper echelon of 5% of, of pro anglers out there. So, you know, you have to be dedicated. You have to be, put your time on the water. You have to, you know, fish as much as you can fish. I mean, there's nothing as much YouTube that's available now and, and social media stuff. And you can learn a lot on that, but the bottom line is time on the water trumps everything by far, you know, I mean, getting yourself in those situations and the weather, you know, the way the weather uh, plays for that day and, and, you know, water levels and that type of stuff, that's all relevant and that's all important stuff. And you can't get that on a, on a, you know, a YouTube channel. You have to really be out there and, and live it every day. Yeah, exactly. And uh, just, you know, I've been obvious, I have a YouTube channel. I've been watching all the YouTube videos, learning as much as possible. But like you said, one, taking what you learn from YouTube and putting it onto the water is where it really comes comes into play because you can watch a jerkbait video on YouTube, watch every jerkbait video there is on YouTube, and yet you can go out and if you don't have the exact proper rod, which you can only really know through feel, then, you know, things aren't going to fall into place for you. Yeah, and I mean, I can teach you and I can tell you how I throw, prefer to throw a, you know, a thunder cricket, a vibrating jig, um, and I can tell you till I'm blue in the face and describe every intricate detail that, that it takes to throw that and throw it efficiently. But until you're out on the water and actually doing it, it's a totally different thing. You know, it's, 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 you gotta be out on the water to be able to, uh, you know, just experience it and to actually, you know, practice, practice it, you know. And everyone obviously develops their own like personal preferences when it comes to certain, you know, lures or, you know, drop shotting is obviously huge up here north. So some people, you know, we have the boat where people are six pound test or nothing. And then you've got like eight or 10 pound test guys. And, you know, you, you can't convince those six pound test guys to, to move from there at all. And no, they, I'm they one just, of those eight or 10 pounders test yeah. guys. You know, I like to, if I have to fish the small mouth, which we do up there on the Northern swing, there's no doubt. And they're fun to catch, but I just something about having a five or six pound small mouth on four and six pound tests some of these guys do no i just you know i've caught them in practice but come tournament time i'm gonna no no littler than eight pound test that's just my preference you know i feel just more comfortable when i hook up with one yeah i feel like just that strength being there is huge and knowing that 
you have that, and it's only two pounds, but knowing that you have that extra two pounds of strength to kind of back you up there. And if they are line shy to the point where it takes a two pound test drop, then I guess, but I've, I've yet to be in a situation where that I've noticed at least that that's been the case, but. I agree with you, no doubt. So, um, like I, going back to the question a little bit, we got down a little tangent there, but uh, for someone who wants to pursue a career in professional fishing, what would you say kind of um, maybe the first few steps are, like you said, if you have the natural ability, you're already at one step ahead of the game. But uh, for those, you know, time on the water, as you said, is crucial for everyone. And um, but what, what other tips would you say to get started and do it? Um, I'll be honest with you, Jordan, that question gets asked the most. I mean, that's probably the one of the most number one questions I get asked out there by fans and, and people that are into the sport and, and just now getting into the sport is, <clears throat> and what I always tell them is it's honestly, it's just like a ladder. You have to climb that ladder. You start at your local level. In other words, um, start at local club level and, when you start dominating that local club level, you might get into a couple of clubs because I'm not saying that one club is just like, you know, you might've got into a club that just, you know, has a bunch of guys that just want to go out and fish and stuff. But if you get into a competitive bass club, yeah. that got some really good local, local sticks in it and you start dominating con consistently, then you move up to the regional stuff, you know, um, like your, your, when I say regional, around your area, 100, 150 mile radius. Um, in Texas, we have a bunch of big circuits out here, you know, and and then you, you, you branch off into that. And then when you can start dominating there, and I don't want to say uh, dominating to me isn't winning every tournament. That's not what I'm getting at, but I'm just saying, putting yourself in the upper 10 or 15% um, placing every tournament against 150 or 200 different uh, boats then that's called, you know, that's, that's, you're pretty well dominating, you know, you're, you're, you're there. And then from there, you graduate up into the, to the opens, to the Toyota series that the coast is what they used to call them, but you know, the Toyota series, the Bassmaster opens. And then when you, I mean, you'll know, because the only way you can go to that next level is to qualify through the opens, you know, to fish the elite series. So, you know, you got to finish in the top, uh, four or five, I, you know, it changes year to year. Sometimes it's three, sometimes it's four, sometimes it's five. But once you get to that point, you finish in that top five and you get an invite to the elite series, then you've made it, you know, but the, then the, then the real work comes in because you have to keep your qualification just because you made it yeah. to the elite series. Doesn't mean you're a permanent fixture there. You have to, you have to, you know, average out your, uh, your yearly, uh, finishes and you have to finish a, you know above 60 percent basically to be able to keep your quote-unquote card it's not really a card but just to keep your qualification there so because there's a bunch of eager guys that are ready to take your spot you know in the opens from you know and they want to move in so that's the way i look at it but that's honestly the stair step way everybody says well what about sponsors you know we could roll into all that and sponsors come when you do well when you get your face in front of the camera when you when you when your name's popping up a lot in the in the articles and on the on social media and that type of stuff then the sponsors start coming you know but everybody thinks that it's, it's a one-way street i hear a lot of you know how do you how do i get this sponsor i want the sponsor and it's well first you got to put in your time and by putting in your time is you got to show these sponsors that it's not a one-way street i mean 
They want, you want product or money. What are you going to do in return for them? Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing there is, is you have to promote their product in a, in a wholesome, good way, because there's a lot of kids involved in this sport. And, you know, it, the sport keeps getting younger and younger every year. And also you have to move the sales needle. I say that all the time. I mean, you have to, I mean, why should they pay you if you can't sell their product for them, you know? So selling their product and, and word of mouth. And, and the only way that you can really sell product is you have to be able to have a name for yourself. And what that means is it all goes hand in hand. You know, people are more apt to, to you know, believe what I'm saying because I'm a, professional fishermen, you know, at the highest level. And, you know, they're going to take my word more than a guy at the local Walmart that's uh, buying Aberdeen hooks, you know, so that's just an example, you know, but that's the, really the stair step process, in my opinion, on how to become a, an elite series pro. Yeah. Thank you for breaking that down. Uh, that was awesome. And uh, I was actually listening to another podcast today and they were saying kind of how over the last you know, I'm only 21, so I haven't been experienced in the fishing industry for the last 30 years. But, you know, how in the last 10 or 15 years, how everything's starting to become more social media oriented in the mm -hmm. fishing industry. But, um, you know, one of my mentors, he was he's more of an old school guy. He was fishing, you know, the uh, can't remember. I can't ever remember the tour he was on, but it was an FLW tour like back in the 90s and early 2000s. And he's always we're talking and he's always like, you know, you got to be a good fisherman. If you want to get anywhere, you can't just get somewhere based off of your social media. And I'm like, no, I understand that. But it's kind of, he's like so anti-social media, it seems like versus a lot of the guys now are so for social media. And then you got to kind of meet in the middle there to try and find that good balance of being a great fisherman and, you know, knowing how to represent your stuff. freeze there you there yeah sorry about that oh you're good i don't know where i left off i don't know what you heard me saying last oh. You were saying just about the social media and yeah. some people have taken a, a, a liking to it or, you know, a, so. Yeah. So like, where, where, do, where do you think, do you think more so that people should establish themselves as fishermen before that they, before they start going after pro staffs or sponsors, sponsorships, excuse me. Oh yes. By far, Jordan, no doubt. I mean, the reason, I mean, I'm a little old school, you know, I'm in my mid forties. So that kind of tells you, you know, as I've been here way before computers and internet yeah. and all that. And then the social media thing. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, my way of thinking is, is if you can uh, perform with a rod and, and a reel in your hand, then, you know, that, that does your talking, but a lot of people, want to see what's on social media and they believe a lot of what they read on social media. And that's, that's fine. I mean, a lot of it is truthful and gospel and, and that type of stuff, but I, I just have this, you know, I'm just being real blunt and honest, you know, and that's the way people know how I am. And the bottom line is, is you can talk the talk, but until you walk the walk and you actually can do it, you know, not in a farm pond and not on a, you know, a, a canned lake, so to speak, and you can do it, you know, four straight days in a, in a, in a pro bass tournament, then 
I don't, I don't really want to hear it. You know, I mean, that's just bottom line, you know, and I grew up with icons, you know, looking at Denny Browers and Larry Nixon's and Rick Clunds, you know, and I, and I'm have the opportunity to fish against Rick all the time. And I mean, that dude, he's forgot more about bass fishing than I'll ever know, yeah. you know, and, and a lot of these, a lot of these younger generation don't even know who Rick Clun is, or they might've heard the name, but they don't understand the substantiality of his name. I mean, what he's brought to this sport. So, you know, I just, don't get me wrong. Social media is the wave of the future. I understand. And I'm going to have to, you know, I'm like an old mule. I'm going to have to jump on or get bucked off. But, you know, the bottom line is, is, is there's still some avenue there to be able to perform with your rod and your reel in your hand. And I think you'll be all right. But you have to be in that upper five or 10%, like I spoke of earlier. Gotcha. And so from there, kind of how, hmm, what do you think? trying to formulate this the best way what do you think is the best way besides time on the water so say for those people who don't have a lot of time to get out on the water how to optimize that time when they're fishing um definitely fish what you your strengths meaning what you what you really want to fish um you know if, you, if time is a limitation you know if, if time was not an issue then i'd say you know you have to uh you know you have to perf uh, perfect your craft every technique you know what i mean but if time is is of the essence and you don't have much of it then you need to take four or five techniques and learn those and and the best you can and make yourself 110 percent efficient with those four or five techniques and you'll still be fine you don't have to be a a, a great deep water fisherman to to make it in this sport you don't have to be a great shallow water fisherman to make it in this sport but you got to pick one or the other you can't be a so-so deep and a so-so shallow or you're going to get your your butt smoked so you pick one and live with it i mean there's guys you know uh that have made a living that deep and there's guys that have made a living shallow mm -hmm. but there's a few guys that have made a living doing both and those are the standouts you know those are the guys that that are everyday names in this sport so they can catch them deep shallow and in between but that is my my recommendation of time is a uh, is a factor then just get you four or five techniques and learn them the best you can and be so proficient at them that nobody can outfish you with those four or five techniques and you'll be good to go yeah and i think me like a lot of other anglers especially young anglers we kind of get spun out and overwhelmed with the amount of different techniques there are out there i'm super to blame because i'll have 20 rods on the front deck you know trying to figure during a practice day trying to mess around with different stuff and figure something out but you know at the end of the day i know like my top five or six things that i'm the most confident in and when nothing else is working i take out that chatter bait and i can start catching largemouth that's just my go-to and then ned rig when it comes to smallmouth, like i just know i can catch them yeah. but, uh, it's your yeah. bread and butter jordan you know that's your bread and butter that's what you have the most confidence in you know, you probably have one or two colors yep. of, a, of a chatterbait that you enjoy throwing that you have the most confidence in. Ned rig the same way, one or two size heads of the of the Ned head and what you like to put on there mm -hmm. as a bait. And I mean, confidence is is 80 percent of the game. Also, no yeah. doubt. I mean, just just confidence. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're throwing a bubblegum colored worm. If you have confidence in it, you're going to catch some fish in it. There's no doubt. Exactly. Yeah. I was uh, on my last podcast. I was talking to a local guide in New York and he was making a mention of how is any Ned rig, you can throw any color for smallmouth and they will eat it. 
And I've found that to be true so far. I've thrown almost every single color on the spectrum of the Ned rig that I can think of. And, you know, from pink all the way to, you know, jet black, it, they all have worked, which is, it's astonishing. Like what a little bit of confidence, like in the technique can do to like, once you start throwing weird colors or something like that in there, how you'll still catch fish just because you have the confidence that you can. Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, one of my favorite colors and, you know, up on the St. Lawrence and stuff like that for them smallmouth is just what we call like white ice. It's just white with a, some silver flake in it and yeah. stuff. And I mean, on a Ned rig or a drop shot, I mean, it catches them just as good as goby color or yeah. green pumpkin or whatever, you know, it's just what you have confidence in. Yeah, that's something I got to mess around with this year because I was hearing a lot of good things about like a white Nedrig or even a white tube on Lake Erie, especially um, for those times, it, you know, because it kind of stands out more so from the, you know, the regular bait fish that are going to be more of, you know, the gray green colors, that white one's really going to pop out. So it'll kind of look like the odd man out and just get hammered, hopefully, but. Yeah, I mean, smallmouth are notorious. I mean, they're known to be sight feeders, you know what I mean? So they're feeding off of sight. And so something that stands out. That's why those loud uh, chartreuses, the siren color that Strike King has, you know, like you said, pinks and stuff, they, they all work because they're big sight feeders. You know, they just want something that stands out. And when they can see it, they're going to eat it. They'll swim 30, 40 feet to come eat it, you know. So then a, another question for you, kind of since we're speaking about smallmouth, is southern smallmouth. How do they behave compared to northern smallmouth? I've never caught one outside of New York, so I'm just kind of curious about that. That's funny you said that, Jordan. I live uh, by a lake called Lake Belton. It's probably one of the best smallmouth lakes in the state of Texas. I mean, we don't have a bunch of them in the state of Texas, yeah. but we have a few. And Belton is the, the probably the premier smallmouth lake now in the state. And uh, southern smallmouth are totally different than a, than a northern largemouth I mean a smallmouth because they're longer they're leaner they travel like a northern smallmouth will they'll travel in long long uh, areas to get um, to find food but the biggest thing is northern smallmouth are t always notorious for feeding really good on sunny bluebird days yeah. and northern and a southern smallmouth like right here by the lake the best days I've ever had fishing them is when it's the nastiest, cloudiest, raining, you know, cloud cover for these smallmouth here are just a different that they like it. In my opinion, you can catch them in, a, in the sun. Don't get me wrong, but usually it's a morning and an afternoon bite when it's real sunny. And then middle of the day, you have to go real. They won't come up shallow like northern smallmouth will sun themselves. They'll actually drop out deeper. So, but yeah, that's the biggest thing is, is the nastier the weather, the better the, the, the southern smallmouth bite. That's interesting. I'm, I'm hoping, you know, I, I still got to check a lot off the list. I haven't caught a spotted bass before. I haven't call, caught a southern uh, smallmouth before, you know, Florida strain largemouth. It's all on the list, but uh well, you come down and see me. I'll get you on all, every single one you even uh, you talked about. We'll go. We'll go stick a few. Sounds good, man. I'd appreciate that. I, uh, you know, I think from where I am, you know, living right next to Lake Erie, and I'm next to all the Finger Lakes and everything, St. Lawrence, Lake Ontario, the River. I I feel like living in this that area specifically, or you know, anytime you're close to a, a big body of water that uh, is notorious for turning out big bags, you kind of start um 
start getting with the the niche groups of people on like that certain lake because you know lake erie guys a lot of the ones that i know they've dedicated their whole life to that and you know they don't really mess around with the largemouth as much but you know i want to i'm i'm interested in targeting both as much as possible so it's awesome to kind of pick the brains of the people who are erie specialists and then those who are largemouth specialists and all that heck yeah that's the way you learn you know exactly and I, I've, I've uh, started fishing the Federation tournaments and this will be my second year doing it. So I'm excited to get back out with people because, you know, uh, last year I fished the St. Lawrence event with the Fed. Didn't, didn't go great. We, uh, we both zeroed, but learned a lot still from an amazing uh, boater that I had. And I just can't wait to get more of those events under because like you learn so much as a non-boater and I've only done one event and it was just mind boggling to me how much information there was that's awesome yeah that's an that's an goes back to like what you're what we were talking about earlier about if you don't have a boat then fish as a non-boater and fish as many tournaments as you can that way and i mean you'll learn so much from the back of the boat there's so many top pros that that have fished out of the back of the boat that started out as co-anglers that have become some of the top pros in the country through their through learning through other boaters you know and something I got to look into this year, because uh, Bill McDonald, I had him on the podcast. He was actually talking to me about this, about uh, the Marshall program for any of the uh, events to try and get in on that, uh, because, you know, you're not distracted with having to worry about catching your limit. You can really just focus in and, you know, take notes and mental notes of what's going on. So that's something I want to look into for sure. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a real good idea that Bill gave you because like I know on the Elite Series, it's $99 to fish for three days. I mean, not fish, but to observe and marshal for three days in a, in a boat with some of the top pros in the country. I mean, what is that average, like $33 a day? I mean, you can't, you can't go wrong. That, that's priceless. You yeah, know? that's like getting to go to a college class for free yes you're getting to like go and learn all this information but you know you're paying a fraction of the price yeah and you don't have to worry about paying the man for gas or nothing you can just sit in in that in that passenger seat eat your bonbons and your zing zing zings and uh just watch what he's doing you know and and you can pick his brain i mean i have i have a lot of marshals that they'll ask me questions you know of course they want to learn and why did you pick this spot why are you why are you why did you change baits even though you're getting bit on the, on a certain bait, why did you change baits in this location? You know, just, they want to get into your mind and realize why you're doing some things. And that's awesome. You know, I, I love to teach and, and explain what my rule of thinking is not that it's always right, but you know, they, there's some studious uh, marshals out there that really utilize that, that time for three days on a, on their, on a, on a lake to, to pick your brain. And it's awesome. You know, it's a good way to learn. So when you're, um, you know, I know everyone's different, but when you're fishing, are you kind of a very zoned in person or are you able to kind of, cause I, I know a lot of people that are super relaxed when they're fishing, you know, they can talk and still catch fish and then other people are just super, uh, laser focused. Uh, I fall in the middle. I mean, I'm laser focused usually until I get a couple bites and get a couple like break the ice, you know, um, but I will speak from the get go in the mornings. No problem. I mean, I'm a real open guy that just talk, you know, if you want to talk, we can talk, but you know, usually, usually they'll ask me, you know, are you a talker? Are you not? I said, usually I said, I'll talk. I'll answer any of your questions. Feel free. 
don't ever hesitate to ask a question. But I said, usually, you know, I try to get in a zone because we are fishing for a living and we're fishing for big money. And, and, you know, we've got a lot on the line, but you know what, you, you, you want to know something, I'll be happy to talk. So, you know, and usually when you free up, uh, when you get, you get loosened up, it's just like anything, you know, in a baseball game, you hit a couple of uh, singles or a home run. And then the next time at bat, you're freed up, you're loose. And that's just like bass fishing, you know, in that setting, you know, you catch a couple of fish, get a couple of fish in a live well, heck, you start running at that mouth, you get a little chitter chatter going, no doubt. And once you get in that groove, obviously you just feel so comfortable, like, a, or when you can pattern them perfectly that day, you're just relaxed because you know that you're catching them, which is, you know, obviously why we do it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So then another question that just kind of popped in my head, speaking of the, uh, you know, the main question we had, what it takes to become an elite series angler, kind of behind the scenes, what a lot of people don't see is the preparation that goes in, like we were talking about before we started recording, that goes in in between those few months that you have before you when the season ended for you and when it starts again. So can you give us a little background into that of like what it, what, I know you mentioned you got to sell your boat, get a new one, get it wrapped. You got to re-rig rods. What's that like? Yeah, it, it can get hectic, you know, and that's where, where the help of like good support system, like with your, my wife and my, my kids and stuff, they help some help out a lot tremendously. I mean, it goes all the way, Jordan, from, like you said, you you, you have to order the boat during, the season before because it takes you know eight ten twelve weeks to get one built so you've already ordered that during the season like this season i'll order it probably like july so i'll have it for the new year you know and plenty of time you got to uh design your wrap make you know appointments for your wrap you got to get your jerseys all designed you know if you've changed sponsors or added some you know lost one or two um you have to change a whole new jersey design and get those ordered those take a while um and then like i posted something on my instagram the other day they were, everybody had me laughing after they said it but it was like me and my spare bedroom getting all my clothes and stuff i mean just you know you have to look at the upcoming schedule and how long you're going to be out on the road. Like this go around when I leave Friday morning here in a couple of days, I'm going to be gone for a month straight. So I'll be gone four weeks. So I have to pick, I have to pack, you know, warm stuff. You know, we're supposed to be fishing in Florida, even though they said the weather's supposed to be bad, but you never know. I mean, shorts all the way, flip flops all the way to, you know, uh, uh, heavy AFCO uh, rain suits and stuff to be able to, to get through because you never know what you're going to face when you're out on the road. So you you have a lot of packing to do that stuff. And then you have to also pack all these baits because we're fishing in Florida. Then we go to Knoxville, Tennessee, which will be a totally different fishery and then go to Pickwick after that. And that's a different fishery. So you have to plan ahead. So you have to make sure I don't forget any baits behind. So the whole back of my truck is full of boxes of, of baits. And so you're covering everything from top water in Florida to you could be throwing a, a, a jigging spoon, you know, in Knoxville. So it just depends, you know, so you have to plan all that ahead, get your fishing licenses yep. for out of state. You have to make sure you have all your fishing licenses you know, toll road tags and stuff just makes it easier. So you don't have to stop, you know, and pay every time you just get toll road tags for your, the state that you're in. And 
I mean, hotels, booking hotels, Airbnbs. I mean, it, it goes on and on. It's a lot. You know, the biz, the fishing is just the afterthought, to be honest with you. I love the fishing part of it. It's the business part and the prep that, that stinks, no doubt. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of time uh, away and to have to be prepared to fish on top of it. You know, like, you know, people go away for a vacation for a week or two, you know, and that's fine and dandy. But when you have to, you're literally working on top of it. So, you know, you're going away to work for a month straight and that's. Oh, and I always leave, you know, I like tomorrow night, Thursday night will be my last night at home. So I traditionally have all my kids over and stuff and my wife cooks a dinner for us and stuff like that. Cause it's like the, you know, I'm fitting to leave for a month, you know, five weeks. And so we all get together, you know, and, and visit and do all that. And then, but I always say, I'll see y'all in four or five weeks. It never makes it that long. They'll fly out or drive out to see me in one of the tournaments because they just can't, I can't go that long without seeing them when you've been around them that long, you know, for, you know, I've got a daughter that's 27 years old and I've got a grandbaby now. And so it's like, I can't go that long without seeing my grandbaby and my daughter and my son and my wife. So, I mean, usually three weeks in, uh, they'll fly out or they'll drive out and see me at one of the tournaments and then drive back home. So that support is awesome. You know, I know it's a big sacrifice for them. And it's a lot to travel like that, you know, for a day or two to see me weigh in and visit, but you know, that's just what works for us. So, you know, I'm, I'm super, you know, super fortunate to be able to have a family like I have no doubt. So how many miles do you think you put on a year on your truck? Oh, I put it uh, last year because, I mean, you had to have all that stuff for taxes and oh, stuff. True, true. So, I mean, I ran 40, right at 40,000 miles last year. So, like, I have a 2019 Chevy Duramax. I bought brand new and, and two years on the Elite Series. I just looked at the odometer. It's dead on the money. It was 83,000 miles. So, I put basically 41,500 miles both years on it. Same, Amazing. same bull. Now, do you enjoy the trips driving or does it get old after a while? Oh, no. I'm a super trucker, brother. When I set sail, I'm driving straight through. I drove straight through from Lake Cayuga in New York Yeah, year before last. Yep. I weighed in, fished all day, weighed in, and drove straight home 29 hours straight back home. Never stopped. Yeah, I, I, I just want to get the trip over with. I mean, there's nothing like being out on the road and – when you have, when you know you get to sleep in your own bed and have your own hot shower, that's your shower that you're used to. Yeah, I'm coming home. I'm not, I'm not laying over now. A couple of my travel buddies, them dudes will make a one day trip into a four day trip. They lollygag around. Not me. Nope. That'll, that'll be me. Home. The four day guy. That'll be me. I'm just not like I did the eight hour drive today and that was fine, but much more than that, I would just be oh jordan you're wet behind the ears son ah we got to get it yeah i put 16 or 17 before i even stopped to go to the bathroom <laughs> heck yeah <laughs> oh boy well um let's kind of wrap things up here um, sure. with a few last questions i had uh everyone seems to like these questions whenever i ask them kind of makes you think a little bit first one is my f personal favorite question and that is, what is your favorite snack on the water? I get a, a wide variety of answers from people saying I don't eat at all to people bringing full pizzas out on the boat. So <laughs> just, where, where do you fall into that spectrum there? 
I usually just pack something light. Like my favorite, to be honest with you, is just uh, honey roasted peanuts. It's got a little sweet. It's got a little salt. And, it, and them old peanuts give you some energy. You know, you can get them two first, two for a dollar. I'll get four or five of them at a convenience store and throw them in the boat. And and that's what I eat. A lot of guys eat crackers, cheese and crackers. I mean, I've seen dudes, like you said, put full spreads out, you know, like they lathering up and mayonnaise on bread and they got the whole back, the whole back deck taken up like it's a picnic. No, no, I'm just going to eat quick on the run. Something I can tilt up, eat while I'm driving or, you know, fishing. And I'm good, you know. I, I don't eat a whole lot, even though I'm a big guy. I eat a lot when I'm not on yeah. the tournament, you know, not when I'm fishing. But during a tournament day, a typical tournament day, I, I drink a lot of fluids. But other than that, I don't eat much either on a tournament day until I get off the water. Yeah, and for, for me, I've all, I kind of view it as, like, every second your line's not in the water, you're not catching a fish. So for me, like, my because my dad's my tournament partner. He's always yelling at me to stop and eat and drink. And I'm like, well, if my line's not in the water, I'm not going to catch a fish. So I need to, I need to right. line in the water. That's right. Exactly right. Maybe just throw a drop shot out the back while you grow, grab something real exactly. quick. Exactly. What I start doing, if I'm largemouth fishing, I'll just uh, shoot a wacky rig out there somewhere and hope that something bites it while I'm eating a sandwich or something. But yeah, I never have that good of luck, but you know, it's worth the try. It's anyway. happened to me once so far since I've been doing it, which is better than nothing. So I, yeah, I can't yeah, complain. Right. <laughs> um, so the next question and uh, another favorite of people is, do you have any tips for staying positive on the water, especially during a tournament situation and especially at your level? Because if you have four days to fish, that's more time for things to go right or wrong, depending on how it's working for you. Sure, sure. I mean, honestly, <clears throat> the thing that works for me the best day in and day out on a typical tournament day is just telling yourself in your in your mind, you know, the where I'm fishing is going to is a productive area. There is fish in the area. You know, we just got to get them triggered to bite. You know, there's there's a reason why I'm fishing that area to begin with. That means I, I did good in practice there or I got a bite or something or it looked good, even even though I didn't get a bite. So I tell myself if it was worth stopping to fish, then it's worth fishing it like it's your best spot in the on the lake, even though it's not. You know what I mean? So I, I keep that. And another thing is, is sometimes it doesn't matter what you do. If you if it's just not happening and you just can't get a bite, I have literally sat down on the deck of the boat, you know, and opened up the center console and just went through a tackle box and reorganized it real quick. Takes two or three minutes just to freshen your mind up, you know, even though it had that box has nothing to do with what you're doing that day. It just frees your mind up. It gives you two or three minutes of not thinking about how bad the fishing is or how bad things are going. You know, you broke a trolling motor prop already this morning and your battery is going dead. Whatever the case might be, the fish aren't biting. I literally will take two, three, four, five minutes. What's five minutes? I mean, it's a, it's a lot. Don't get me wrong. It seems like an eternity in tournament fast fishing, but in the same sense, if that five minutes equates into the next four hours of positive mental uh, attitude and, and, and good casting and stuff like that, because what happens is when you get frustrated, not only does the mental side of you go down, the physical side goes down. You know, you start backlashing, you start 
catching, you know, hanging into trees and stuff. If you're skipping a wacky worm, you know, under some low hanging trees, everything compiles itself and makes itself a lot worse than it really is. So just boom, sit down, breathe, take you, you know, grab you a bottle of water, whatever you prefer to drink out there, drink it, organize a little box, you know, a little swim jig box or whatever in your boat for a few minutes and just and then boom, you feel almost re-energized and refreshed. And then you go back at it. And, you know, like I said, five minutes is a small price to pay for the next four hours of being productive. Out there. It just takes that sometimes that little bit to change your mindset again, to get back in. Yeah. It takes the edge off Jordan. No doubt. Takes the edge off. Well, I want to say thank you for being on the show today. I learned a ton uh, as I do with most of the podcasts. I hope the listeners learned a lot as well. Uh, is there anyone that you'd like to shout out? I know you mentioned your family earlier, but if there's any sponsors or anyone that you'd like to shout out. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the sponsors have been with me since day one. You know, SDG Marine Texas Boat World, they're my title sponsor. They're awesome, awesome to work with. You know, um, Strike King and Lose, they've been behind me since day one. And Owner, of course, I wear their hat. I love I love Owner Hooks. Anybody that uh, that's looking for a good hook, you know Owner's one of the, one of the best in the world, you know, and uh, – I've got so many other great sponsors, PowerPole and, and uh, you know, just Mercury. Everybody has just stood behind me. And, you know, I, I it's not a sales pitch. It's just what I use and what I feel confident in. I'm not a spot uh, sponsor jumper. You know, I keep the same sponsors year after year. As long as I'm doing them a good job, hopefully they like me and they keep me around. You know, I'm just a big old teddy bear anyways. Perfect. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening and stay tuned for episode number 30 of the JD Outdoors podcast. Thank you for having me, Jordan. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you.